I believe great things are in store for this church beginning next Sunday, and uh, I hope that you sense a new enthusiasm here and uh, that uh, there is, is going to be a lot of growth in the coming months and years because of the decision that you all have made. I heard about uh, a couple, they were about 60 years of age, and they were outside their house on an unseasonably warm Sunday afternoon, December afternoon, working in their yard, when all of a sudden they discovered a bottle out in the yard. The bottle had a cork in it. They pulled the cork out of the bottle, and sure enough, a genie came out of the bottle. Now, they had heard about this in jokes and stories, but they had never seen anything like this before. The genie said, I will grant each of you an early Christmas present, whatever you want. They said, whatever we want? The genie said, whatever you want. Well, the woman thought about it and said, man alive, do you know what? I have lived in this house ever since we got married for three and a half decades I have lived in this house and I would love if it's not too presumptuous I would love to live in a mansion is there any way that you could the genie raised his hand and said no problem at all poof just like that their house was transformed into a magnificent mansion it was humongous it was beautiful The landscaping was incredible. And she said, this is the greatest gift I have ever received. Thank you so much. The genie looked at the 60-year-old man and said, and what would you like? Well, the man was kind of staring back at his wife. And the genie said, well, what do you want? And the man noticed that he was a safe distance away from his wife And so he said, well, I've always wanted to be married to a woman 30 years younger than me. And poof, just like that, he was 90 years old. You know, sometimes gifts don't turn out like we would like. But let me tell you, this has been a great gift. The last two and a half months, serving with you. And getting an opportunity to meet new people and to work with a church that I think is right on the cusp of great things happening. I think it speaks well of uh, Steve Newland, to tell you the truth, that he was involved in calling Christina to come and lead in worship. And that uh, Mike is here at, uh, I think Steve was responsible for Mike's coming, and uh, Mike has done such a great job with the youth program here. Uh, of all the churches that I've served, and there have been 10 of them or so since I retired, three to six months, even though this has been a very short period of time, uh, I have seen evidence from young people Uh, And from what adults have told me, that Mike is doing a tremendous job with the young people of this church. And during this transition, when churches usually do not grow, if anything, people see the transition as a time to go to a different church. And so usually there's a fallout that occurs. And uh, I'm not sure whether that is the case here, but it seems to me 
that this church is in great condition to grow. And uh, Steve is very fortunate that he will get up and speak after a praise team leads worship such as we've experienced every week at this place. You're a friendly people. You've been kind to us. You've taken us in. You've understood. You laughed at my jokes on occasion. And you have grown through this transition. And a lot of it has to do with the staff members. Ken works hard to cover all of the details and make sure that everything is up and running. And as I said, the first Sunday that I was here, excellence inspires people and honors God. And when new people come in and they see this is a place of excellence, an excellent youth program, an excellent office staff, an excellent worship time, excellent care of the facilities, new people are impressed because you are honoring God with your excellence. I heard about a health class where a third grader by the name of Chris was assigned to write a paper on childbirth. And so he did the only thing he knew to do. He asked his parents. He said, how was I born? His mother said, well, honey, the stork brought you to us. Well, he said, well, what about you and daddy? How were you born? And she gulped and said, well, those, the stork brought us too. The little boy said, well, what about grandma and grandpa? His mother, sitting in the recliner, was a little bit squirming at this time. But she said, well, the stork brought them too. A few days later, Chris handed this paper into his teacher with the opening sentence that read, This report has been very difficult to write due to the fact that there hasn't been a natural childbirth in my family in three generations. <laughs> well, the birth of Jesus was not natural, was it? The birth of Jesus was supernatural. All the way back in Isaiah in the Old Testament, the seventh chapter of Isaiah, verse 14, the prophet writes, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. A few chapters later, in Isaiah the ninth chapter, verse 6, Isaiah writes almost in past tense as if it had already happened. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. At Christmas time, we study the story of Jesus' birth from nearly every angle. Most churches spend one month out of each year trying to find a fresh way to look at Jesus' birth. Now, actually, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of information about the events surrounding Jesus' birth. So we have analyzed every detail of the journey to Bethlehem, the unnamed innkeeper, the star, the shepherds, the sheep, 
and the wise men, and they must have had camels. But an overlooked reference to the birth of Jesus is found in the book of Revelation. So I want us to look at the Christmas story according to Revelation. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Revelation, the 12th chapter, 12th chapter, and the study sheet in your bulletin as well to follow along. Revelation 12, verse 1 says, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. Now, we've read that word sign before, all the way back in Isaiah 7. The Lord will give you a sign. And here in Revelation 12, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Now, although written in apocalyptic language, the writer is obviously referring to the birth of the Messiah. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. The sign was that a virgin was going to give birth to the Messiah. She had conceived under the power of the Holy Spirit. A great and wondrous sign appears. The supernatural signs that take place on earth originate in heaven. And when Christ was born, a great spiritual battle took place. Verse 3 refers to a second sign. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. Now, you never see a dragon in any of the nativity scenes, do you? But according to the book of Revelation, according to John, the 12th chapter, the dragon was there just as surely as Mary and Joseph and the wise men later on and the shepherds early on were present. The dragon was there. We live near the dragon. A bright red. Red is the color of evil, isn't it? A dragon. You never see any good dragons in the Bible or anyplace else for that matter. The devil didn't wait until the crucifixion to attack Jesus. Remember Herod. After Jesus was born. And when he heard that a king had been born. He wanted to make sure that that king didn't survive. And so Herod ordered that all the male babies in and around Bethlehem be slaughtered. And if Mary was the handmaid of God, then Herod was the hitman of Satan. From the very birth of Jesus until today, he has been under attack. John Gibson was a television commentator on the Fox News Network a number of years ago. John Gibson is a Jew. A Jew. But he became so fed up with attacks on Christianity at Christmas that John Gibson, a Jew, wrote a book entitled The War on Christmas. And that spawned a number of other books from other Christian authors describing this war, this warfare that's taking place. We see it every year, we see it escalate. 
in the world every year that Christianity is under attack. Florida Gulf Coast University several years banned all holiday decorations from the common spaces on campus. The University of North Carolina banned Christmas trees at the main libraries on campus. The school district in North Carolina banned reindeer. Now, I don't know the connection. Why would you ban? In Kentucky, we call that hunting season. <laughs> banned reindeer. But the fact is, we live near the dragon. Paul the Apostle warned in 2 Corinthians, the second chapter, verse 11. He said, we must not let Satan outwit us, for we are not unaware of his scheme. And he has a scheme. He has a scheme. A few years ago in Florida, an atheist became incensed over the preparation for Easter and Passover holidays. And so he contacted his lawyer about a discrimination inflicted on atheists by constant celebrations afforded to Christians and Jews with all their holidays, while atheists have no holiday on which they can celebrate. Well, the case was brought before a judge, and after listening to a long, passionate presentation by the lawyer, the judge banged his gavel and declared, case dismissed. Well, the lawyer immediately jumped up and objected to the ruling. He said, Your Honor, how could you possibly dismiss this case? Christians have Christmas and Easter and other observances. Jews have Passover and Hanukkah. And yet my client and all other atheists have no such holiday. Well, the judge leaned forward in his chair and he said, Obviously obviously your client is too confused to even know about, much less celebrate, his own holiday. The lawyer said, Your Honor, we are unaware of any such holiday for atheists. When might this holiday be? The judge said, Well, it comes every year on the same exact date, April the 1st. (laughs) April Fool's Day. It comes every year. And since... The Bible says the fool has said in his heart, and April Fool's Day is April Fool's Day. Then thus, in my opinion, if your client says there is no God, he is a fool, and April the 1st is his holiday. Now, have a good day and get out of my courtroom. Wouldn't you love for that to be said in some courtroom by some judge today? Well, now I want us to look at Revelation, the 12th chapter, And Revelation, the 12th chapter, reminds us of three very important truths for us to think about today. Number one, Revelation 12 reminds us, don't sentimentalize the nativity. We have a tendency to sentimentalize things, especially at this season of the year. But Christmas is not just a cute little scene with angels and stars and sheep and shepherds and wise men and camels, a dragon lurks outside the manger. The birth of Jesus was not just meant to inspire cozy Christmas carol sings with a cup of hot chocolate in our hands. The birth of Jesus inspired a great war in heaven, and we are a part of that battle whether we want to be or not. The devil sought to disrupt and destroy that child and his birth all the way until his death. 
Glenn Bourne, a professor at, was a professor at Johnson University of Florida several years ago, but he said it would be an interesting study to go back to the Old Testament and do a comprehensive study of the different ways that the devil tried to prevent the seed of the woman from becoming the Messiah through death of kings and various individuals. Satan tried to block the birth of Jesus. Revelation, the 12th chapter, verse 5, says, She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Mark Lowry, the gospel singer, wrote, Mary, did you know that your baby would one day rule the nations? There's no way to comprehend that this tiny, seemingly helpless infant was the creator and the king of the universe. And the last half of that verse, verse 5, she gives birth at the beginning of verse 5. And then at the end of verse 5, the Bible says, And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. It's interesting, there's a lot skipped over in that verse, isn't there? Johnny Presley, a professor who used to be at Cincinnati Christian Seminary, said, this is the story of Jesus in one verse. He was born, and then he was snatched up to God and to God's throne. An angel warned Joseph in a dream that Herod would attempt to take the baby's life. And God provided in that setting, the Bible says in verse 6, The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of. At age 33, Jesus would ascend to heaven and escape the vicious attacks of the devil permanently. But when threatened as an infant, the father protected him on earth. And so the woman fled, if this is Mary, fled into the desert to a place prepared by God where she would be taken care of. An angel had warned Joseph in a dream that Herod would attempt to take the baby's life. Joseph, Mary, and the baby fled in the middle of the night to go to Egypt where they remained until Herod died. But before Mary and Joseph left for Egypt to live in that foreign land with no advance notice, God directed wise men to come and worship the baby when the baby turned into a child. And donate expensive gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And those gifts provided by those wise men probably financed the trip of Mary and Joseph and the baby to Egypt. And allowed him to get on his feet to establish a carpenter shop in Egypt. The father provided for his son. But don't, don't sentimentalize the nativity. The second important truth is this. Revelation, the 12th chapter, reminds us to see evil clearly. See evil clearly. We need to understand, even though this is Christmas and this is a different kind of Christmas sermon, I realize, we need to realize that Satan targets societal structures, institutions that hold great sway over vast numbers of people. And if he can corrupt 
the small number of people who control such cultural structures, then the institutions themselves will do his work for him in the lives of thousands, even millions of people. In verse 7 of this text, just after the story about the, the virgin giving birth and the baby being snatched up to heaven, verse 7 says that there was war in heaven. And the devil was cast out, thrown down. And two verses later, in verse 9, we read all four of the devil's names in one verse. It's the only verse that I know of in the Bible where you read all four names, the dragon, the devil, the serpent, and Satan. All four in one verse of Scripture. Now, Revelation 13 helps us factor in the devil into our calculations. Because in the 13th chapter, the very next chapter, we see three such schemes of the devil. The first is godless government. Godless government. And the goal of godless government is physical persecution. Now, we live in a wonderful country. The United States of America is the best country by far than any other on the face of the earth. And as we celebrated Thanksgiving that honors and considers what has been done in the past, the thanksgiving that was given in the past when those people came to America and they wanted to honor God because they were given religious freedom. But the America today is different from the America of that day. I love America, but not blindly. We should not give blind loyalty to any country that censors the Bible in school, that passes out free condoms to children, that kills more unborn babies in one year than all Americans lost in all of the wars combined. Godless government portrayed by the first beast in Revelation, the 13th chapter. Beast number two in Revelation 13 is the beast of false religion. Chapter 13, verse 14. The second beast leads by power and deception. And false religion, the goal is intellectual deception. And so we have Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, animism, the occult. The third element in this scheme of the devil, godless government seeking to physically persecute Christian people, false religion seeking intellectual deception of people. The third is a prostitute in chapter 14, hedonistic culture, and the goal is moral corruption. These three schemes of the devil are used today to get people away from the main thing of the church. And it happens. Unconsciously, Christian people are shaped by sometimes selfishness, pleasure-seeking, sexual promiscuity, lack of courtesy, crude humor. And it appears that Satan is winning. 
Because we see societal structures, institutions that hold great sway over vast numbers of people because Satan corrupts. Satan corrupts. But I want us to see clearly the third truth, and that is victory is assured. Victory is assured. Because back in Revelation, the 12th chapter, verse 10, the apostle John writes, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come salvation, power, kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God, day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not so much uh, love their lives so much as to shrink from death. God has called us to be overcomers. To overcome by the blood of the Lamb. When we meet around the Lord's table, we are remembering that we are overcomers by the blood of the Lamb. Because of, of the word of testimony, that is the word of God. And because of devotion. To be willing to serve the Lord faithfully, even when the government is godless, even when religious, the religious world is deceptive, and even when the culture is corrupt. Because every time someone is baptized into Christ, there's a victory that is won. Every time a Christian dies, that's part of the victory, isn't it? The victory is won. And even in this life, sometimes we see a glimpse of that victory. December 2015, Johnson County, Kentucky. At the W.R. Castle Elementary School, the school decided to put on a Charlie Brown Christmas. But the superintendent of schools had issued an order that the Bible should not be read at any program that was going to take place in the school system. So the superintendent banned all Bible passages. Well, you remember the Charlie Brown Christmas. You probably remember that Linus in the Charlie Brown Christmas quotes Luke, the second chapter, beginning with verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock at night. Lo, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. The angel said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people today. In the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. None of that. Banned. And then, at the end of the Charlie Brown Christmas, Linus comments on his own quotation of Scripture. He says, that's what, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. But on the night of the play, when they came to that part where Linus was to quote the Bible Scripture, silence fell. Absolute Silence. And then everybody in the audience, the parents in the audience, the people in the audience, and the stage people as well, began to quote 
that same passage of Scripture. Until they got to the end, you'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Because that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Our victory is assured. And sometimes, even in this life, we see little glimpses of that victory. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the opportunity that we have as a church family and that there is freedom so far in America that we can worship, we can preach, we can sing, we can obey the dictates of our hearts as they are guided by your scriptures. We know that that freedom is in jeopardy. But we thank you that we have that freedom right now. And Lord, we pray that you would use the people of this church, Steve as their leader, to make a difference in this community, in every area of this community. That you would use them to brighten the corner, this corner, where they live. Father, we pray your blessing upon this church, upon elders, new elders, leaders, on every ministry leader, that the church here may work together as one. We pray that you would bring unity where there is any division at all. We pray that positive words, encouraging words, would far outnumber any negative in this place to reach people with the gospel of your son Jesus in whose name we pray, amen.